This week, we welcome Chris Hollenbeck, Chief Information Security Officer for the Americas at Tanium, to discuss how to simplify and accelerate patch management. In the leadership and communications section, Cecil struggle to cope with mounting job stress, corporate compliance strategies to pre- protect data, cybersecurity metrics that matter, and more. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Weekly. Stopping advanced threats requires knowing exactly what you're up against. ExtraHop Reveal X is the only solution that shows you not just where intruders are going, but where they've been. 90-day look back and complete network visibility across the data center, cloud, and device edge help security teams respond 84% faster with ExtraHop Reveal X network detection and response. Explore the interactive demo at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. Cyber risk and compliance automation is finally here. Legacy GRC systems cannot support the powerful, real-time automation and oversight that organizations require to take risks that matter to succeed. CyberSync continuous control automation ingests data from the IT GRC stack to update controls against regulatory requirements and risks in real time, delivering insights and visibility. See how members of the Fortune 500 are saving millions annually by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash CyberSync. Welcome to Business Security Weekly. This is episode number 218, recorded May 24th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Alderman, back here in Colorado after a fantastic week in studio. Joining me from the studios in Rhode Island is my first co-host, Mr. Paul Asadorian. Hey, Matt. Good to be here today. Yeah, we missed you last week, but I know you have kid duty, especially Always. when we do evening shows like Always that. Always kid duty. So we missed you. <laughs> And joining us remotely, my second co-host, Mr. Jason Albuquerque. Hey, Matt. Hey, Paul. Sorry I can't be there. You you had kid duty last week. I have family in from Texas, so I guess I have family duty. There you go, which means you're not drinking Glengarant 18 or smoking an Opus X. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad. <laughs> Do you want to stay in the loop on all things Security Weekly? Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe on your favorite favorite podcast catcher or our YouTube channel. Sign up for the mailing list, join our Discord server, and follow us on our newest live streaming platform, Twitch. In our May 27th webcast at 11 a.m. Eastern, we'll explore the latest attacks against DNS and the latest techniques that make it possible to discover and disrupt those attacks. In our June 3rd webcast at 11 a.m. Eastern, you will learn about pen testing tools and why every organization should be using them regularly. Join us on June 10th at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Notice the pattern yet, anybody? For our webcast on insider risk to learn how to quickly mitigate data exposure risks, visit securityweekly.com forward slash webcast to register now. If you've missed any of our previously recorded webcasts or technical trainings, you can watch them at securityweekly.com forward slash on demand. This segment is sponsored by Tanium. To learn more, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium. Chris Hollenbeck is the CISO for the Americas at Tanium. Chris provides security leadership and operational insight gained from over 20 years in both public and private 
private sector. Chris came to Tanium after almost seven years of government service at the U.S. Computer Emergency Readiness Team, U.S. CERT. At U.S. CERT, he designed and built their incident response capabilities and restructured the team's focus towards strategic remediation with a goal of building more resilient organizations. Chris believes that breaking the incident response groundhog day, groundhog day cycle requires an emphasis on IT hygiene. Prior to joining U.S. CERT, Chris worked at RSA Security. We overlapped there, maybe, I'm not sure, as a security engineer and with the AOL Time Warner on their global incident response team. Chris, welcome to Business Security Thank Weekly. You. Thank you. Good I don't to be know here. if we were at I don't know if we were at RSA at the same time. I was there 2012 to 2014. Nope, you, you would have come in uh, after I had left then. Okay, got it. So we did miss each other there. All right, so we're going to talk about patching, which is my favorite. I mean, I love this topic because this is a struggle, I think, for a lot of organizations. It is. Having worked for two vulnerability management companies, having done a lot of scanning and, and pen testing work in my consulting days, this is always a big area for organizations of how do you handle patching? You know, in the old days, the vuln scanner would go out, find all these vulnerabilities. You take this big report, you throw it over the fence to the IT team and say, go patch it. Um, that doesn't work these days, does it? It never did. <laughs> um, realistically, it never did because organizations would have to take that report, match it up against their servers and the names that they knew, know them under versus what the uh, vulnerability scanner might report them as. Then they'd kind of have to stack rank that, look at what are the high uh, vulnerabilities uh, or the criticals, then decide which servers they could touch within a given window of time or not. And by the time they just got done deciding which ones they're going to take action on, then they'd start doing all of the testing and other processes that go into a patching cycle or a typical patching cycle. Then they'd patch them. And if you look at most organizations, they were happy with maybe getting an entire scanning of their network done in a one-month cycle. So by the time they're even ready to start the patching of selected machines and selected vulnerabilities, the next cycle of scanning has already started. So it's just kind of this beatings will continue until morale improves problem that they've got. Yeah, which we know does not work well with the IT operational team. Now, we've yeah. talked a lot about automation, right? We, we talk about it in our incident response processes, SOAR is hot. There's also been a, a long time discussion about automation from a patching perspective, but we haven't seen necessarily a lot of progress there because again, back to your point, which machines can I patch? Is it going to take the system down? So we weren't pushing a lot of automated patching solutions. Have we made gains there? Well, I think there's also been a shift in mentality, too. Um, a lot of organizations, surprisingly, and this actually shocked me, talking to a number of CIOs and CISOs from the healthcare industry, um, several of them actually have gone to a model where they patch everything. They don't even pick and choose which types of patches they're going to apply, not ranking by severity. Everything gets applied in a monthly cycle. And what they did is they said, okay, system owners, you get to kind of choose your destiny. You get to pick what day of the week on the third or fourth week of the month, your patches are going to get applied. But otherwise, you're getting the patches on this window. So that 
mentality is starting to shift in a lot of organizations where they just simply say, we're going to patch everything within a given certain window of time and on a, a, a given cadence. So that's helping. Um, but in terms of true automation around it, usually there's disparate data sets. You know, you've got the vulnerability scanning. If you have um, performance management or performance monitoring of systems, that's yet another system, another platform, then the patching system itself, tying all of those things together is a key part of it. I mean, if you think about what organizations do for patching and the testing cycle, some of it comes down to what are we going to break? What is the performance impact going to be when we add these patches to a system? And if you can automate some of those steps and the validation that, okay, it's been patched, has it taken hold? Has there been a proper reboot if it were required? And getting all of that done, that's where people stumble. I and mean, if you think about it, we're talking at least three, maybe four different products in a typical situation to do that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I can totally validate that. That's that's an approach my myself and my team had taken quite a while back is that, listen, we're going to partner with the business units across the organization. We're patching systems. It's going to happen. So let's work together. And we're going to talk about this later on in, in the leadership articles about building that relationship across you know business units and, and, and developing that unity. We worked with every single business unit to say, let's come up with a cycle together that works for us and works for you. So that way it's not this contentious back and forth, right? Let's, let's develop the system together and the process and the cadence. And that's that whole you know, shared responsibility and shared accountability across the organization for security. The business units had skin in the game. So we had to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see organizations um, where we had, we had someone who was going through an acquisition and the, the company that they were acquiring, they had a clear policy. They would only patch criticals. How did I know this? Because they had mediums and lows that hadn't been touched in five years. Right, right. And that, that's the danger that happens when you pick and choose, right? And, yeah. and for me, I, I didn't have a comfort level of cherry picking which vulnerabilities I wanted to remediate. I'm not comfortable with that. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, you know, yes, a one high severity remote code execution thing turns into a worm, whatever that, yeah, you, you go and you deal with that. But if I can chain two medium vulnerabilities together and have the same effect exactly. in a targeted attack against your organization, you're, you've got a lot of risk there no matter what. Yeah, 100% now, agree. Yeah, you, you talked about a handful of the systems is it worse now that we have people working from home and remote and we're not quite sure where the actual device lives? I mean, did we only make the problem a little more complex in oh. a hybrid workforce? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, for, you know, traditional patch tools are aligned and to an assumption that the system is on the enterprise network, at least for a good chunk of time so that you can exert control over it. You know, it, send the patches down, tweak configurations, do all of those things. And now it's, you know, maybe the machine is on the corporate network via VPN for an hour a day, if that. And that's a losing proposition. You're never going to get the patches pushed down. You're never going to be able to really exert control on that endpoint if that's the case. So, yeah, I think it, it's a lot more complex. Um, and I think when people come back onto the corporate network uh, from having worked at home and everyone tries to come into the office, whether it's one day a week, project driven for two weeks, and then 
home for the next six weeks, mm-hmm. that time that they're on the corporate network, most of it's going to be spent just updating patches or bringing malware into the network. Um, So a lot of organizations are going to really have to rethink this. During the pandemic, a lot of people were willing to accept the risk versus just getting the business done. And now that we're over that hump and and there's light at the end of the tunnel, they're going to really have to rethink their tooling and look at solutions that can give them control both on-prem and off-prem. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a must. I mean, you know, being a being an organization that quote unquote had its digital transformation early in its career, we have entire business units who don't VPN in at all since the beginning yep. of the pandemic because everything they do is cloud based, right? So we would have run into that issue if we didn't have the ability to to patch from you know uh, uh, from 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 the internet out, right? And, and basically have uh, a centralized system to make sure that they're being patched and and, and we're keeping an eyeball on them. But uh, but at the end of the day, our you know more and more organizations that I'm talking to are saying they're going to take a, a hybrid approach and maybe and maybe only say 25 percent of the time should you be coming into the office and all the rest yeah, of the time right. you don't have to come in. So that's you know you're looking at 75 percent of their work time not being within the four walls, quote unquote. Yeah. Well, let's clarify. I mean, when we talk in patching, are we only talking operating system? Or are we right. also talking third party? Because that you know. People can, depending on their solution, can can handle the the patching of the OS stuff, hybrid model, maybe depending on tooling. But the third party is still another piece that they're not necessarily addressing. There's uh, this evolving school of thought that you can be a pretty mature security-wise organization if you're only patching vulnerabilities that have exploits for them, because if a vulnerability doesn't have an exploit. It's not really posing as much threat. So oh. rather than like go through the trouble of prioritizing all the other ways that we can prioritize and probably spend the next three hours talking about, right? They're like, if it has an exploit, regardless of severity, I'm just going to patch it. Yeah, that works until the patch comes out and then the adversary spends maybe a couple hours or a day reversing it to figure out what the patch does. And then they just write the exploit. And just because it's not out on and published doesn't mean there isn't one out there. But again, once you, you put a patch out there, it's easy enough to do the diff if you're a researcher, find the vulnerability behind it, write an exploit for it. I mean, yeah. I you mean, see that not, all the time. I mean, not, not only the risk around that, but at the end of the day, is that really where I want my staff focusing their time is doing that no. research? No. Well, I you could. Right? I mean, you could. I'm just playing devil's advocate here because I don't necessarily disagree with your comments. Actually, I don't. I agree with them. But uh, you can automate that, right? I mean, you can go find if you have a modern vulnerability scanner or management platform, it'll flag things that have an exploit and pull that from multiple different different sources. I mean, some of the really innovative ones will actually pull stuff that you may not have known about, right? They'll pull the exploit from the dark mm-hmm. web and then and then add yeah. it in. I still, from what it sounds like from the comments, we don't agree that it's a, a valid strategy because it's still yet one aspect to the risk of posture of yeah. your organization. I mean, I mean, even with automation and orchestration, you still need people's time to go in there and make sure, number one, it's working, making sure it's tuned. Do you know what I mean? Like there's still overhead involved in that. And that's not where I want my staff focusing their time. Yeah, no, I agree I on that front. I, I might use that approach... Because there are a small subset of systems 
that are either cantankerous or, you know, they're so business critical that they need to be handled with kid gloves when it comes to patching. So maybe I'll use that kind of automation of threat intel to go find out if there's an exploit on those. And if not, they can languish a little bit farther behind. And I might use other controls inside my network to provide better protection around those systems. But that's so few and far between. I should be going for the 95 to 99% of the assets in my environment and getting them patched at least every month, ideally within days or weeks of when a uh, new set of patches come out. I, yeah, and I, I, I agree because if I take the flip side of the argument, yeah, just because an exploit exists doesn't mean it really works all that well. And I may have spent a whole bunch of time trying mm -hmm. to patch a system against for a vulnerability for which, yeah, there's an exploit out there, but no one really has it working all that well. Or it doesn't, the other thing is it doesn't work in my environment because of my configuration or because of some mm -hmm. compensating control that I've had. So now I've, again, put my resources in the wrong spot and patched that yeah. thing when it really wasn't the riskiest thing that I could have been patching on that given day. No. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather just get into a regular cadence, get everyone used to getting the patching done and where I can automate that and take man hours out of the equation. Because, you know, everyone worries about automation eliminating jobs. <laughs> I don't know of any organization that doesn't have a backlog of work that they could take and reallocate those people to other more interesting tasks. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and Chris, to to your point, right? I mean, I look at I look at organizations in three fashions. I've said it on the show before. You can be in run mode, grow mode, or trans or transform mode, right? I'd rather have my staff focusing on the growth and the transformation of our department than the overhead of the run, right? Keep yeah. the lights on. So if I can automate the keep the lights on stuff, so be it. Awesome. Then my you know my staff is focusing on the growth and the transformation. I think it's always been my philosophy in some capacity to recommend organizations like you should just always be patching. You should always be working to reduce your technical debt. Don't get too hung up on uh, remediation in, in the sense of trying to prioritize that and having compensating controls. Like Get really good at I can go update anything and there's a process for that and I'm minimizing both my security risk and operational risk. And guess what? If I'm pushing technology forward, this is my chief innovation officer hat on, it's not just good for security, it's also good for our customers probably too. Jason Page read out of your book, if I'm constantly updating my technology stack, I'm providing a better service to my customers or at least 100%. enabling the business to do that. Yeah, I, 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 it's amazing. Like I'll have conversation with with executives who say, oh, no, no, tell me which thing I should be patching first. And it's like, why? Go patch them all. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the conversation of what is it about patching that is so painful that they only want to pick and choose? You know, is it the technology? Is it existing processes that we've put in place? I think all of us can go back to some point in our career where there's some horror story, whether we experience it directly or the organization we were with at the time had this lore about some disaster that happened and it was caused by a pad patch that went out. And so all these processes get layered in on top. And it's almost a prevention of IT after a point, the way we've done this. And that's why I think patching has gotten so God awful is that we need to also the technology's get, gotten there. Now we need to go back and re-examine some of the processes and the reasons those processes existed, and decide do those problems still exist and can we really streamline this? Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I would it, say the time you would invest in, in trying to classify and risk rank the patches, you're better off classifying and risk ranking the assets. So that way you're patching the most high risk assets first. <laughs> take, take the time and do that, right? And, and make sure you're classifying your assets correctly. Oh, you mean go back to just 101 and, and know what you have and why you care you about it. it? You know it. <laughs> and, and look, 15 years ago or so, Microsoft patches weren't that good. But Microsoft's made a ton of improvements around their patching process and, and, and being on top of patches. How many eh, patches actually fail? Eh, quite, quite, quite a few. I, I think that <laughs> I think what we were trying to say, and forgive me if I got this wrong, but that you need to be able to move forward even if a patch breaks things. In Chris Reardon, your process should account for that because guess what? You're going to have a patch that breaks yes. stuff. It just it <laughs> happens. Maybe less frequently, Matt, but it's still going to happen. And if your processes don't deal with that uh, and deal with that well that you're yeah. still going to be in this point and, where you've and, got and Paul, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's no. standard change management processes. You have a backout plan. Yeah. You've got rings of systems, right? You, you've got that initial ring of, of guinea pigs, ideally inside your own IT org. Uh, they get it first. And then you, you pause briefly. You listen for the screams. Nothing move on right and if you can tie again if you can tie in everything straight from here's the list of vulnerabilities feed that to the patch system patch system gets ready to do the patching you run some performance checks on on any of the critical systems so the kind of baseline where are we at right now apply the patches to your your systems pause to listen for any manual screaming because your test cases don't catch it check performance again, check the vulnerabilities again to make sure they're, they're completed. Those steps, if you have the tools integrated, can be automated. Mm -hmm. Annotate the change ticket automatically, move on to your next larger ring of machines, do the same thing. Okay, still no screams, blast it out everywhere. Right. Yeah, I think part it, of that it, is, is, you mentioned it, Chris, is having a really good test plan to know when things fail. I think if we're going to move, when what I like is moving the DevOps philosophy into your patching architecture, but yeah. a critical component of that is getting feedback back to the right people in an expedient mm -hmm. manner. And I think that's part of what's, what's largely missing today. It's certainly one piece. Matt, you've been yeah, trying just, to talk this entire time. No, no, no. I, uh, <laughs> this is why I have co-hosts. They, you know, they, they, they make the job so much easier. But Chris, I want to go back. That that kind of best practice, right? That the first ring, that second ring, you know, those those steps. I mean, what's the typical cycle look like, or what should it look like for an organization? Is that a thirty-day window? Is it shorter than that? I mean. What are some of the best practices around if you have all these integrated systems together, what 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 does good look like? So let's take Microsoft patching just as as the initial example, because we know they come out every 30 days, right? Every patch Tuesday. It's so named for a reason. If you do anything greater than 30 days for your patch cycle, you're automatically behind. Because by the time you apply the patches, you've already hit another patch Tuesday that is added to your pile of things. Mm -hmm. You will never get ahead if that's what you're doing. So at a minimum, it needs to be less than 30 days, right? That, that's kind of, let's just set it at that. Otherwise, you're just, you're not even treading water. You're just very slowly drowning. So can I, can I pause you there for one second? Sure. 
Because when I worked in the vulnerability management space, trying to get people to scan their network at least once a month was hard enough, right? Oh, that's a celebration if you do that. (laughs) Right, exactly. So just think about what you said from a frequency perspective. If you're not patching within a 30-day window, which also means if you're not constantly scanning within that same 30-day window, you're immediately behind. Yep. And I'm also going to break your mind again, because this is going to go back to the discussion about off-prem assets. You can't scan them in a, in a traditional sense of doing a centralized network-based scanner to hit those assets. But you still need to evaluate them in the same manner. Uh, so when you're in that kind of a hybrid world, then yeah, the conversation turns to, do you do something that is agent-driven to do that vulnerability checking? If so, you can arguably evaluate those endpoints multiple times a day. In fact, we have customers that do that. They evaluate their systems two to four times in a given day. And you know, when you can do that, you have fresh data to work from and you can immediately start making business decisions. If your cycle is predicated because of your technology choice on a 30-day window or longer just to even do the vuln scans, you're, you're not going to catch up. Yeah, the age-old problem of, of staying on top. But you're right. I think agent-based technologies give you the opportunity. So, so think about this now. I've got an agent that's sitting on the box that's doing vulnerability assessments multiple times a day. I assume that same agent in the case of Tanium also has the ability to help you with the patching stuff. So guess what? Right. Now I'm getting dual purpose out of my agents instead of having agent you know overload on these endpoints. Right. Yeah. Uh, in the case of Tanium, it's Um, doing the vulnerability checks, doing configuration checks. So if you work from CIS benchmarks or anything of that sort, um, you can uh, evaluate your systems against that. Uh, You can do performance checking of those systems to get that data back. You can do the patching and you can even do incident response activities. Yeah, that's, that's integration, right? When you think about all the unified capabilities in a single agent that gives you all that data. Because so, look, some of that data is important for security. Some of that data is important for IT. I mean, I, I, I kind of expand this out into my application thought process yeah. a little bit too. When you think about application vulnerabilities and application performance, same thing on the endpoint. Yeah. And, and it's amazing. Uh, you know, years ago, when I first came to Tanium, we actually had people looking to our EDR component of the platform, both for the EDR function, but it gave such instrumentation that ops was using it to figure out, hey, we've got an app that isn't working correctly. What type of telemetry do you have that might give us insight into what's going on? Yeah, yeah, and that, that consolidation of tools is super important, right? I mean, we, we, we always talk about this on how, um, you know, the strategies are now to consolidate down, right? We, too, many, too many tool sets in, in, in our environment, and we can't manage any of them well. And realizing the economies of scale of what, like, like Tanium can bring to the table, bringing all of that capability under one, one system is just, it, it's super beneficial to the, to the teams. It's amazing. Uh, organizations that, you know, they, they have an intrusion or they have a major incident, the pocketbook gets opened up, they go on out and they just buy stuff. And then at some point they come to this realization of, oh, we have to deploy and then manage and then consume the data off of all of these different consoles. And how do we do that? And how many different SMEs do we need in order to do all of that as well? 
And at some point, yeah, people start examining that either just because they're, they're drowning on that or budget and there's a pressure mm -hmm. there or because there are so many agents that get out, put on the endpoint, the end users are screaming at them because of the performance impact. Right, right. And, and to be honest with you, the more tools we have in our environment, the, the, you know, the less we adopt, right? I mean, so many of our customers struggle with adoption of those tool sets. You know, I, in, you're not realizing that return on the investment. What good is a tool if you're only adopting 20% of the capability that you invested? Or, or worse yet, also, that tool was gathering the right data to tell you about a problem, but because everyone's attention is scattered over all the different tools, they missed the one piece of information that would have come from one of those tools that could have cl clued them into an ops-related problem or a security problem. Yeah. Um, that's actually what scares me the most, besides just the, the tremendous waste of money. It's missing something just because everyone's attention was scattered too far away. Yep. No, that yeah. makes sense. Or, or you turned off aspects of the data collection because it had a performance impact on the endpoint. That's how we justified <laughs> Sam's new computer. No, never. <laughs> That's how we justified Sam's new, new MacBook because when they installed Jamf, the thing wouldn't even run. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paul, Jason, any additional questions while we have Chris? Uh, no, good I, to go. This is this has been awesome. I could talk a lot about this topic, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. Unfortunately, we'll ha we'll have to take a break. But yes, we'll, we'll have to do it over beers at a conference at some point. Sounds good. Absolutely, <laughs> Chris. Thank you so much for joining us on Business Security Weekly. Thanks for having me here. To learn more about Tanium or how to simplify and accelerate patch management, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium. We're going to take a quick break and then cover the leadership and communications articles for this week. Cybercriminals are using social engineering loaded with urgency and fear to successfully prey on victims, your employees, or your customers. Protect your Office 365 email from today's most sophisticated attacks with Barracuda Email Threat Scanner. It's a free tool to help protect your business from these hard-to-detect attacks. The Barracuda Email Threat Scanner uses artificial intelligence to hunt and eliminate Office 365 email threats. Find the cybersecurity threats hiding in your Office 365 email right now. Get your free email threat scan at securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. We're proud to announce CISO Stories, a new podcast series in partnership with Cybersecurity Collaborative and Cyber Reason. CISO Stories features the candid perspectives and experiences of frontline senior security executives and dives deep into timely security topics. CISO Stories is hosted by Todd Fitzgerald, VP of Cybersecurity Strategy at Cybersecurity Collaborative, and Sam Curry, Chief Product and Security Officer at Cyber Reason. Listen weekly as they speak with extraordinary CISOs by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash CSP. Welcome back to Business Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Paul Asadorian and Jason Albuquerque. Security Weekly is excited to announce that we will be at InfoSec World 2021 in person. Yes, I said in person, October 25th to 27th, 2021. This year, our annual partnership with InfoSec World is extra special as we are both business units under the Cyber Risk Alliance brand. 
What does that mean for Security Weekly listeners and InfoSec World attendees? You will get to see in here from many of the Security Weekly team at the event and will also save 20% off your world pass. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ISW2021 to register using our discount code. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover on one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. All right, Jason, I put some good articles in here this yeah. week. We, we the, the first one, Cecil's struggle to cope with mounting job stress. This came up in our interview last week with Jonathan on Tuesday mm-hmm. night. He brought yep. up one of the stats about CISO, what, like one in six or one in eight CISOs medicates yep. using alcohol or something like that. And yeah. this yep. article popped up and I'm like, oh, we got to cover this we, one. We have show. to talk about that. Yeah, and the that. other and- seven are lying. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're just medicating with other voices. With guess. something <laughs> else. Right. Right. Be specific about what you're. Right. Right. So, so, so first I have to say, is it crazy that I got a chill, Matt, when you said, and we will be there live. <laughs> It was like, holy crap, you're going to be in person? Right. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, Crazy awesome. talk. It's a good feeling. Crazy. It's a good feeling. But, but you yes. want to know what? It, 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 in the article, it, make, it makes sense. Think about, and, and it's not just the CISOs, honestly. I mean, obviously, that's the focus of our, our topic here. But C-level executives across, you know, across the business are feeling more pressure because you know, over the course of the last year and a half or so, uh, businesses have been trying to innovate as fast as they can for obvious reasons. Um, they fast forwarded their digital transformation activities and started really pushing heavy on IT projects and, and, and leveraging IT to, to, to be a differentiator. And, and you know, I kind of call it cabin fever. We've all been stuck in cabin fever, right? So yeah, the stress, stress levels are high, right? And, and, Honestly, I, I read this article and, and, and I'll say it again. I've said it before. Number one priority is we have to be taking care of ourselves before we can take care of the business and our staff, our employees and our customers. We have to be taking care of ourselves. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to, 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 to be in the mindset, to be on, to be, to be sharp, right? So, you know, coming out of this, find ways, your way to alleviate stress, whether it's exercise or you know, hanging out with your your friends now that we can actually start having more social activity. Take care of yourself. Whatever it is that makes you happy, go do it. Take the time. Last week was a great like ac- event for me. Right, I haven't been in studio in nine mm-hmm. months. We haven't been together as a team in right. nine months. I mean, it was great to get back into studio and work with the team. Look. There was there was not a lot of stress last week. I mean, considering we did 33 interviews in four days, we produced yep. four executive shows in the evening, we work four 12-plus-hour days, but stress levels weren't that high because we were just all there working together, getting stuff done, having a good time. I, I thought it was a great kind yeah. of for me, a good recharge because, man, you're right. You get cabin fever sitting here, oh, you know, so <laughs> at home all but the time. I, I think there's there's two things that you both just highlighted, which are, are important and tie, in, tie into our discussion of like, will people work from home? Um, you didn't have cabin fever anymore by coming in the office and you were able to collaborate at a level that actually reduced stress. 
that's those two are huge things. Why I think everyone's like, I was gonna be working from home forever. I don't know. Go back to those two things. I, I think that's I, I'll you know what? I'll 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 literally put it to this level where where it was something that happened that immediately I felt, you know, the stress level kind of start to dissipate. Walked in the door to the studio, and the first thing we all did was gave each other hugs because we could. Right. I mean, that, that one thing, we saw each other, we gave each other hugs, we gave high fives, so nice to see you. That five-minute cycle of what we did, you could, I could feel the, the level of happiness and maybe dopamine or whatever was happening in my body, but it just it changed the attitude of what was going on in there. And, and the shows last week were incredible. We had a great time. And you're right. There was zero, zero stress. It was, it was just awesome, right? Because well, I, I think simple what, as, as, as a hug did it. You know, hugging the crew. But also, I, 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 I agree with that. But I also think it's you're not waiting on someone to have a Zoom meeting or Slack chat mm-hmm. or an email, and that waiting breeds stress. And I think yeah. we at Security yeah. Weekly certainly that's really close to home for us because I mean, look at the number of hosts and guests that are appearing on our show every week. And yeah. that waiting breeds a lot of stress. When we can all be in the same room, it's, it alleviates a lot of that excess communications and waiting. And it's not just the waiting, Paul, to me. It's the back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back throughout the day. Yes. It, it creates a stress because you're constantly jumping, jumping from a Teams call to a Zoom meeting yeah. to three more consecutive Teams calls. That also puts a lot of stress on the organization and the leadership teams. Yes. Oh, I, that's, a great, that's a great point, Matt. I mean, a while back, we all made a, uh, a commitment to each other as, as leaders and, and, and colleagues that we wouldn't make one-hour meetings back-to-back. We'd do 40-minute meetings, 45-minute meetings, so everybody got a breath in between. Mm. Uh, this next article, eight things CISO should be thinking about, but probably aren't. I bet some of these are actually being covered, but I thought it was an interesting list to review nonetheless. Yeah, no, it's a great list. I mean, I pulled some 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 of the items that are kind of close to home for me out of this article. You know, investing in innovation opportunities. You know, if you, if you talk to any folks who've ever worked for me in the past and on my teams, I, I force innovation time into calendars. You have to do it. Right. Otherwise, you just get stuck in that. We talked about it earlier, the run, they keep the lights on. And that's that's not how you're you're bringing innovation and becoming relevant within your organization. Right. And, and, and showing that, uh, you know, you're adding business value. You have to you have to innovate. You have to put time on people's calendars to learn new technologies, help, you know, help with automation and orchestration like we talked about before and, and really focus on that growth and transformation. So that's one that stuck out big time for me. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of talk around supply chain and third-party vendor management and having to run a program, ensuring that third-party partners maintain strong security. That's not an easy task. Not in the light of how we've done third-party vendor management and in Mm -hmm. the light of all these uh, attacks. That is not easy. No, it's not. And and it's all hands on deck when it comes to that. It's a a combination of business units who who have to work on that, right? Everything from financial due diligence from our finance team uh, to your to your vendor management team you know doing the, the the integration due diligence the security team doing the security and compliance uh, type type it's it's a shared responsibility I say it all the time but that's one place where a security team cannot do it by themselves there's way too much involved yeah agreed uh, let's see this next one corporate compliance strategies to protect data um, 
I, I, you know, it, it, this started off, I thought, as a pretty good article. We've mm-hmm. covered a lot of these topics, though, right? I mean, yeah. cross-functional team approaches and operational strategies, mm-hmm. focusing. Uh, yeah. I think the interesting one that came out was trade secrets audits, which you was like, wait a minute. How many people do that? Like, do they actually do that? Because I've, I've never done I, I, that. I, yeah, I, I don't know if, if organizations actually do that, but it's um, it's it's something to kind of keep in mind, protecting your intellectual property, right? And and you know, we we talked about it in the interview segment that yeah, you have to have those relationships across the business, and you know, building building that um, is really the only way that you're going to be successful. Because if you're doing it in a silo, you're going to miss a lot, right? Because yeah. The HR team, the legal team, the services team—you uh, know—they're going to know where 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 some of those skeletons are hidden and that you can't find. So whether it be process or data or whatever the case may be, um, you know, vendors that they're bringing into the organization, right? We just talked uh-huh. about vendor risk management. Uh, yep. You have to have that level of insight, and in, in, in really, it's that that strategy across business units that's going to do it. Yeah, I mean, we we even had conversations last week around the challenges of data data discovery, data classification. Mm-hmm. It's yep. this is a struggle, right? And if you're doing it in silos, there's no way you're going to get your arms around where all that data is right. and how to protect it holistically. That's right. Yeah, I mean, step number one is just build relationships across the entire business. Yeah. Uh, fourth article: cybersecurity metrics that matter. So Wendy Nather. Uh, who good friend of the show, Wade Baker, presented at RSA conference last week. Uh, there's a short interview of her. Uh, we didn't get an opportunity to interview her last week. But I, I summarized some of the takeaways out of here. So what they did is they did a research study. They looked at two pieces. They looked at 25 security practices and 11 outcomes, but they didn't try to tie them together. They wanted them separate, and they wanted to see if there was causality between the practices and the mm-hmm. outcomes. And there were some very interesting findings that I wanted to highlight here. Best practices and improve security outcomes the most, proactive technology refresh, which we talked about last yep. week. Isn't that what I was, just, I was just saying? Yeah, yeah. Past totally. couple of weeks, you I've were. been saying that. Yep. And I swear I didn't talk to Wade or Wendy. So. <laughs> Yep. So proactive technology refresh, keeping on top of the latest and greatest technologies is a very positive outcome from a security Mm -hmm. perspective. Number two is integrating those technology stacks Mm. together, which is, again, we 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 talk about that too, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of instead of siloed products and ecosystem that that you can get context across the entire business. Right. Exactly. All the time. And so when you think about 25 practices and I didn't look at the whole list. Technology refresh and technology integration are the two that have the biggest impact mm-hmm. on security outcomes. Just something for CISOs and executive teams yeah. to take away. Look, if we stay on top of technology and we continue to improve our integration, we're going to be better off from a security perspective. I thought that I was a very also interesting finding. I'd add better off from a business perspective as well. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yep. And that's honestly, that's where security comes in. The security team comes into play to be that business partner for the business, right? Because you can come in and say, not only are we refreshing the technology and how it's going to improve our posture, but here's how it's going to help the business as well. Because you understand that technology and you understand what that new technology is going to bring to the table. Yeah. 
The other thing that I, I just loved out of this was compliance and name only is not enough, which means just because you name somebody that's in charge of compliance, yep. it doesn't mean it impacts your security yeah. outcome. We've been no, saying this for 15 you know, plus years. A, right. If the philosophy is check the box, of course, it's not going to work. We know that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then when it got to metrics that matter, she said they're really tied to two things. Outcomes and the capabilities of each organization. There is no silver bullet here. It is a combination of what are your outcomes and what capabilities do you have or capabilities do you need that will drive the right metrics for your organization. And and I think that's because I think a lot of people look to metrics as like, just give me the list and I'll just, you know, I'll just <laughs> duplicate it. But it's not right. that, it's not that it's simple. Not. No, every business is different. I mean, I've worked for multiple IT services organizations, multiple MSPs, and none are the same. The cultures are different. The processes are different. The, the leadership styles are different. The technologies are different. It's like a fingerprint. You can't, there's no, there's no one the same. Yeah, and I think her matrix of the 25 practices and the 11 outcomes might be an interesting model for other organizations to kind of look at which practices doing, what outcomes are desired, do they have the right capabilities to deliver, that could set a template for what types of metrics an organization should look at. I agree. That's what I took a look. Uh, okay, article number five. I had to throw this one in here. Security <laughs> by design, a new model for cloud cyber. Oh, a new, new? model. What? A new, a new model. Come on, <laughs> man. We've been talking about security by design for at least at least 10 years and probably oh, longer. God, yeah. God, yeah. I mean, we've been talking about that since day one that I started co-hosting this podcast. And, and, and teams have been talking about it for, you know, eight years prior, right? Shifting left, getting security embedded as early as they possibly can. But uh, is, it, is it wrong that it needs to be there? No, it needs to be there. But it's not new. This is not new. Yeah. No, it's not new at all. And I think it's it's interesting how we take concepts that have been around for a while and then the, they kind of lost focus and you're like, hey, here's a new approach. No, that's an old approach. It didn't work 10 years ago. So what do we do? The, my question is, what do we do differently to try to get to a security <laughs> by design? Yeah, why are we still talking about this as a new approach? <laughs> Yeah, this should just be right? this should just be the approach. And as we established previously, you should right. be innovating, refreshing uh, technology, and do that with security experts that, ha as Jason always says, right, have a seat at the table, uh, instill it. that that culture, so that when you do something new, uh, that you take security into that design. And look, a well designed whatever you're designing, if mm -hmm. it's well designed, is going to account for security vulnerabilities oh. and exposures, right? Yeah. And, and, and yep. you know, for, for, for folks who are looking for that seat at the table or have it, it's all about just the security leader having the influence and the ability to make change, the authority to make change, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to make things happen. You need to be empowered to have the authority to work with business unit leaders and say, we need to be going down this. How can I partner with you to get us to this outcome? Yep. I, there's a couple points in here that I wanted to, to highlight. Reducing risk related to technology, to Paul's point, technology refresh, integration, mm -hmm. insider threats, 
and supply chain back to the supply chain third party conversation right to me that that is near the top he's got it second in this list and i don't know if this was supposed to be ordered or not but to me that is that is a huge component like how do i reduce my risk across those three areas before I, I go into some of these other steps, mm-hmm. uh, supporting developers and engineers while enabling the business with development, security, and operation. This is the whole the whole promise behind shifting left and DevSecOps. We talk a lot about that on Application Security Weekly yep. and some of this on, on ESW, but definitely components there. And mm-hmm. then I can look at leading edge innovation or other approaches to continue to reduce that risk. But I those first two to me, are just a little more important higher up the stack before I and, go and, down some of these other and paths. Let's, let's think about this for a second, Matt and Paul. Why? Because they're not within our grasp of an IT fix, right? Because dealing with supply chain, you need to interface with a lot more business units than just the IT team or the security team. You have to, yep. right? Insider threat, that goes across every single business unit within your organization, you have to have a relationship and some level of authority there. Reducing risk related to technology, if you don't have the authority, guess what? That end-of-life system, you're not replacing it. Simply because the security team said so, mm. well, guess what? It runs my business. You know, that's what you're going to get. We won't drive revenue if we, don't, if, you know, if we have any outage here. That's what you'll get. So this is where having the authority and the influence matters. Because these are items that are not in our grasp. They're not IT. They're not security. They're outside business units that you have to interface with to make that happen. Yeah. Back to our collaboration and communication and leadership discussions that we uh, have on on a lot of these shows. Yes. Uh, Last article for this week. I could have added a bunch more in here. (laughs) Four ways to handle the cybersecurity skill shortage in 2021. We talk about these in various places all over the place, but I thought mm-hmm. this was a really good summary of things we have to think about, right? Sure. Because number one, we got to keep the talent we have mm-hmm. because that just creates more of a skill gap, it, right? It, and so, well, I mean, re- you're just you're, you're just playing musical chairs, right? At the end of the day, you're playing musical chairs with the talent that exists. So, if you're not nurturing the talent that you have, they're going to get up and move somewhere else. And musical chairs isn't going to fix the problem. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, we're going to have that problem until we fix the way people get into this field and oh. mature <laughs> that model. I mean, that's really, uh, I mean, course. we can talk to a blue in the face about the skill shortage. It's not going to change until people have a perception and understanding of what this field is and yep. get into it like they do many other fields, such as if you want to be a lawyer, a teacher, a doctor. Whatever it is, right? Those professions are so much more mature and that shows in the way they've garnered interest into people getting into them. And mm -hmm. we lack in several areas against a lot of those professions. And and, and you know, I say this all the time, Paul, because this is a huge passion of mine. Um, Until we, who are the professionals, put our skin in the game and Mm -hmm. help, help those organizations identify and build security talent, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. We need to be more involved in K through 12 education, influencing that. We need to be more involved in, in higher ed and making sure that their curriculum can make people workforce ready as soon as they get out of the university. We need to be working with departments of labor and training and saying, hey, you may have people who have an aptitude who can get into this field who are not employed right now. How do we build programs to educate them? We need to be handling that. Mm-hmm. That's how we build the pipeline 
right? And that's how we stop the bleeding. Yeah, and then we get HR on board to stop creating these requirements for some of these right. positions that are just unrealistic, which is point number four, which was yep. is kind of my hot button topic here, because that is the one that I think limits bringing in people from other fields and other areas into our industry is because the HR requirements are just not right for the job role or position. They, they're, well, they're, yeah, they're absolutely wrong. They, they limit they limit people with the right attitude and aptitude to get into the field. They stop them from being able to get into the field, which again is that piece for um, you know what I'll call the disenfranchised workforce. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they're looking for a new new career. Those folks can't get into cybersecurity because of all these HR limitations. We need to be changing that Absolutely. because there, there needs to be structure at the entry level positions in hmm? grooming people at the entry level positions. Sure. Look, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you have to have the ability to, to, to bring someone in and create maybe like an apprenticeship program. Mm-hmm. Right. We've talked about that. Mm-hmm. Right. And that way you're building a bench. Look at how structured it is in the medical field. When you want to become a doctor or really yeah. a lot of positions in there, there is a structured path. You just Big don't time. walk into those positions until mm-hmm. you've walked the path of in like doctor, right? Certain type of schooling, certain type mm-hmm. of, um, a fellowship program. Yep. Uh, it's very, very structured. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can recruit into those early positions, you invest in training and, and you find really good incentive models, you can start to build that path without a mm-hmm. formal official like industry path. Organizations yeah. could build aspects of this themselves yeah. to really enable those positions to come in, get trained, and kind of grow. I mean, the hospitals yeah. run the resident programs for doctors. I feel like we need something similar in cybersecurity. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, obviously we're a little bit more spread out and disparate, right? I mean, you go into a hospital system, obviously that's that's their revenue generating, right? That's that's their service, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. In, many, in many instances, cybersecurity isn't the service of the organization. So I can see why hospitals will be investing because that's how they make money, right? Because mm-hmm. they have to have the medical professionals. But right. you're absolutely right. right. Cybersecurity leaders should be modeling programs like that where they're developing talent internally mm-hmm. and they, or, or they bring them in and they can develop them and then they have a progression. So that way they're keeping and retaining the talent. Yeah, absolutely. It's a challenge in the industry. Let's hope we can continue to improve it. Gentlemen, a pleasure as always. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Next week is Memorial Day, so we'll see you in two weeks on Business Security Weekly.